Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Genesis. You know, I'd, I would like to say, and this is by no means a knock on anyone, okay? This isn't an indictment. I want to say that we are a praying church. My opinion is we're in the process of becoming a praying church. And I think that some of what the Lord might be doing in this time is bringing people to a place where we, where we really begin to trust in the power of prayer again, where we commit ourselves to it. Um, there is no greater weapon that we have than prayer. And uh, so guys, may that be an encouragement to you. Let's be praying. And it's okay too, for us to be praying about being together, that the Lord would make a way for us to have the fellowship that we long for and that we enjoy. I believe that. Now, we're going to uh, continue our study here tonight uh, in Genesis. We'll be picking up in Genesis chapter 2. So if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles tonight to Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. This chapter, Genesis 2, Guys, this is, uh, this is a powerful chapter. I think that oftentimes this is a chapter that, not that we gloss over it by any means, but, you know, it, oftentimes this is, this is day one of your read through the Bible and 365-day reading plan. You go back, you begin in Genesis, you go through this. I mean, many of you have probably read the first few chapters of Genesis many times. Uh, we can read through this and, and we kind of, because these are the, Genesis 2 Genesis 1 and 2 is the making of a lot of our Sunday school lessons. It's the makings of a lot of our uh, Bible stories. That it's not that we necessarily discount the creation account, and we've dealt with that a lot over the last couple of studies here in Genesis, those that do question its authenticity. Um, but I think we can just sort of talk about Adam and Eve and the garden and all these things, and it, it just becomes something we see in the murals and Sunday school and all these different things. And we can, like many things in Scripture, like many things with the Lord, it can begin to lose its significance a little bit. What we have in chapter 2 is a continuation of the creation account, not a different account, not a new account, uh, a complementary account, but one that sort of takes us deeper into the events surrounding creation, and in particular, the creation of mankind, the creation of Adam and Eve. And we get insight into this account, and what I believe that it really shows us is the incredible relationship that man can enjoy with his Creator that was there on display in the very beginning and is still a relationship that is desired by God in heaven today. And when we read through chapter 2, what what we see and what I hope that you see tonight is that there is a God in heaven who loves His creation, who loves you. He loves you and He cares about you. And the intimacy that He demonstrated and how He creates us is absolutely incredible, and I pr- it's my hope that really, not because of my words here tonight, but just 
by, by considering it once again, that as we, we look at this passage of Scripture, that, that maybe your minds might be blown a little bit again. Because the other thing is we live in this world that just there's a constant assault, not only on the Word of God, but there's a constant assault on the value of life. And I'm not even talking about pro-life, pro-choice stuff, though that's absolutely a part of it. But it's amazing to me that, that in a world today that wants to talk about uh, how people need to be cared for, and, we, and there's all this rhetoric out there right now about, about all sorts of different things that, that really is supposed to be geared towards people and life and love and, and, and all these different things. But that, as, again, as we've kind of even considered as we've looked at the, the creation account, but there isn't a value. There's not an inherent value for life within the secular system of our world today. And so that's the, the, one of the great ironies is that we want to sort of uphold this fact that, that life matters, but, but yet have a belief about life that it's just meaningless, that it's accidental, that we've come from, the, from pond scum and just, be, and just by chance turned into something, and that thing turned into something, and that thing turned into something, and whoa, all of a sudden here we are. Why in the world would we think that life matters? If, those are the, if, if, that's, if that's the origin story of mankind, why? who cares? But I think what we know, what all people know, Christian and unchristian, inherently we know it. There's something more. There is something special. There is something special about life that we do when we look at a person, when we look into their eyes. We think, man, there's, there's something unique. There's something special. Sadly, just too many people because they don't want to bring themselves under the authority of Scripture because they don't want to admit that there's a God because if there's a God, then there's accountability. Then they, they deny anything else, but it's that. It's that which is crying out to them, all of creation crying out to them, saying, you do matter. Your life is special. And then there is a God in heaven. There's one who created you, who loves you so much. And people need to hear that. Kids need to hear that today. Those who are feeling hopeless today, they need to know there's a God in heaven who loves them. And we see that in this chapter. Now we pick up in this chapter in verse 4, because remember, remember that the, uh, the, cha- the chapter markings and the verse markings in the Bible, though, though the individuals who were responsible for doing that through the canonization of Scripture um, largely did a good job, sometimes the markings just aren't where they uh, necessarily should be, and those aren't original to the text. And so really, chapter 1 goes through verse 3 of chapter 2. So we pick up here tonight in verse 4, and what we read here is that this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, And there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. See, here in the beginning in verse 4, it's saying this is the history of the heavens and the earth. Some people suggest that this is somewhat of a conclusion of the first chapter, and some people say that this is now an introduction to kind of this second part in chapter 2. You can debate that either way. It really doesn't matter. As we pick up here, though, what we recognize, and as we make our way into this chapter, is that this is where a lot of critics suggest that there's a different creation account, that there's clearly some error or uh, inconsistency here, but that's not the case. Chapter 1 gives us the six days of creation, and then the seventh day, which of course is for rest, for the Sabbath, and and here in chapter 2 we come to a section that is very much complementary to chapter 1 and focuses in further, as I've mentioned, on the events surrounding the creation of man. 
This portion is less about chronological events. Chapter 1, it was very much then this, then this, then this. And in chapter 2, it's less about an exact chronology of what's happening here and more about God's special interest in man, the pinnacle of his creation. Mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. Now, some have suggested that this section here in chapter 2, verse 4, really all the way through chapter 5, verse 1, may have been written by Adam himself. Um, because of a little bit of a different use of vocabulary that we see in the next couple of chapters and j- just some differences in how the, the, the writing, the structure. And so this has resulted in some, uh, uh, some contested authorship, and it really could be. We don't, we don't know for sure. This absolutely could be more of an original recording from Adam that was passed down and then was eventually just sort of dropped in by Moses into the broader text. And that would be perfectly fine. There wouldn't be anything wrong with it. That hardly needs to be a cause for some uh, concern over errancy within Scripture. Uh, ra- rather, it would allow us to just go, okay, we, we, we see the historical account of creation, and now we see it from Adam's perspective with some different details from, some who was, from someone who was there and had a bit of an eyewitness account. Um, now, we could spend all night going over the different document theories for authorship and the consistency between the accounts. And if you look at this as a different perspective on the creation of, count of, of man in particular and all the debate that has happened, um, but that would be, it, it's unnecessary. We don't, we don't need to go there. What I, what I think as we look at this chapter is that you can easily find the value in this close-up account. To what I've already mentioned, you can see why it's important, why the Holy Spirit has included this in Scripture. Because to me, it's, it's not sufficient for us to look at uh, chapter 1, verse 26, for example, and to see, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them, and then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. If you're like me, you want to go, I want to know more about that. God, how did you create us in your image? And while, while there's a lot of questions we have that, 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 that God doesn't answer in Scripture necessarily, uh, certain things that we just don't know all the details of it, this is one of those things where it's like, man, I, I want to know more about that. And that's what chapter 2 gives us. It gives us more insight into exactly how that creation occurred. Now remember also, in case there is anybody who struggles a little bit with some of the perceived inconsistencies here, that Jesus, in Matthew 19, refers to both Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 in a harmonious account. He puts them together. He speaks to the truth of them. Okay, so what I often like to say for those who want to fancy themselves to be some educated critic who says that there is an issue here, take it up with Jesus. Right? Take it up with Jesus. Go to him with the fact that you feel like it's wrong because he puts these two accounts together and considers them one. And so I'm going to trust Jesus on this one. So here in this first section, we see that the world at this time was different than how we know it. Namely, that it did not rain. That's kind of what stands out to us here as we begin this section here. This is that sort of biosphere that we talked about in the six days of creation where the earth really sort of watered itself in more of a vapor form that it came up from the earth and there were certain aspects of evaporation that occurred within the atmosphere and and of course we'll hear that there were some rivers and so those served to help water the the area and um, the fact is uh, that that rain 
just didn't happen uh, on the earth at this particular time. That would come later with the flood. And I believe that this is the state that we will return to in the new heaven and the new earth where there's no night. Uh, and I don't believe there will be rain coming down upon the earth. I think the earth will care for itself in this way once again. And now we come into verse 7. And, and, and so the fact is, there are days that are being skipped here. Especially if this is Adam's account, he's not concerned about giving all of the details of each day of creation. We got that in chapter 1. Here now he's focusing on what he believes to be the priority of this part of the creation account, which again is the creation of man. And so in verse 7 we read, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now here, if, if this is Adam, as I mentioned, he skips the work of the fourth and the fifth days of creation. He goes right into the creation of man. And we see here that when zooming in, if you will, on the account, uh, as we get more detail here than what we have in chapter 1, that man and, and woman were not created simultaneously. It was not um, both of them at the same time. Uh, they were created at different times uh, in, in some respects for different purposes. So first we have the creation of man. And listen, there's nothing special about the substance of man. We share the same elements. What we are made up of is the same elements as the rest of the earth. As man, I mean, scientifically speaking, uh, science does not contest this aspect of creation in terms of man really being made from the dust of the earth. It's those, science has proven that that's what we're made out of. And of course, not to be morbid, but we know that, that just as, as the Bible says, from, from dust we were made to, to dust we will return. Job speaks of that, um, that that's what happens. When our bodies decay after we die, we can easily just sort of become part of the earth again because we're made up of the same things. And so what we are formed from is not necessarily special. We share similarities with rocks and dirt and trees and everything else that's in creation. And so it's in humility that we are formed from the dust of the ground. The significance, however, is in our maker, is in our creator, and the process by which he brings us to life. That's what's significant. So God forms man. And how, how does this happen? Well, we don't know. God doesn't necessarily have a body, yet at the same time it says that we are made in his image. Um, and so I, I love to, to, to picture in my mind just this, this massive being, God somehow reaching down to the earth and beginning to, to take this clay-like substance, right, and form it together and shape it and mold it. And, 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 and even in that, though, though we're not told that that's exactly how it occurs, we can see within that the significance of this part of creation differently than the rest of creation. In the rest of creation, we see the power of God as he literally speaks things into being. He just says a word and it's there. Let there be light and boom, there's light. Okay, so that conveys God's power. But yet for man, God gets involved. God's hands are involved. You know, it's often said of a good leader, people respect a good leader when they are willing to get their hands dirty, right? When they're willing to get involved in the project. Some of you before have, have, have said, you know, if you see me at church doing something, somebody said before, well, well why are you doing that? And it's, well, why wouldn't I do that? 
we're, we're all a part of this, right? And for, and, and for you, it was some sort of weird thing that maybe I would take the trash out. And quite frankly, that sort of, that should be like the top of the pastor's job description, right? A willingness to take the trash out. And we know that here, right? There's, there, there, there's been a, a fellowship that's developed here uh, in this church that I, I don't want to necessarily say it's unique because we're certainly not special, but we appreciate it because we're a body, we're a family, we're willing to, 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 to there's, there's a willingness on our parts to all work together and to do things together, right? There's something to be said when people are willing to be a part of something. And here, though it may not be a perfect analogy, we have this, we have God who with a word can speak things into existence but yet here he says i want to be involved i want to be a part of this that in and of itself right there tells us that there's something special about this relationship and so here god begins to form man and everything is developed but unlike speaking a word to energize the life of man as he does with the animals god himself in a way that we don't fully know or understand bends down and with his face if you will near the face of man intimately involved breathes the breath of life into man and energizes his lifeless body this here, the breath of God, is the Ruach breath of, of God. This is also uh, translated pneuma. This is the Spirit. Um, this is something powerful that he is breathing into Adam, this first man, and he energizes his lifeless body. And this is significant. This is different. This is powerful. This is the breath of God. He doesn't do this with the animals. He doesn't do this with the trees. He doesn't do this with the rest of creation. It's with man that he, that he bends down and, and gets close and breathes into him and brings him to life. And not only does this then show us the source of our life, but it should also show us our dependence on him. As much as we take for granted, and maybe right now is a good opportunity for many of us to go, listen, over the last week, my breathing's been a little affected. There's, there's literally nothing that I can do other than to rest and one breath at a time go, okay, I'm just, I'm breathing. And right now it's a little more limited. If I get up and move around, I, it, my, I don't have as much as I'm accustomed to. My lungs are a little restricted. You know, when you struggle to breathe, you become aware of just how, uh, how precious it is. And I think as we sometimes breathe just one breath at a time, it sort of, at least it draws my attention to God and to the, the fact that he breathes life into us and to say, Lord, at any moment, at any moment, you could make that my last. You could make that my last breath. We read about this. Uh, Job mentions this, right? In Job, let's turn there. In Job, in chapters 34, in verses 14 through 15, Job, Job 34, 14 through 15, if he should set his heart on it, this is Job 34, 14 through 15, if he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. You see, it's Job here declaring, he's saying, if God, if God should set his heart on it, if God should decide to gather to himself his spirit and his breath that is within us, if he should decide to take it, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. You see, Job had an understanding of how precious life was. That at any moment, God could decide to say, I'll take my breath back. But do we think about our breath in that way? 
that every breath that I breathe is yours, Lord. It's your breath in me. I mean, there's a good song about that, right? A good worship song. It's your breath in my lungs. That should be our mindset. Lord, it's yours. Every breath that I breathe, Lord, it's yours. You gave it to me. You gave me life. An awareness of our dependence on him. I may have fully transparent with you. Last week, when in kind of the height of this sickness, there was one morning. It was the rough morning. Ashley knows what I'm talking about. It was that morning where I thought, uh-oh, this thing's not very good. And I thought, we might have to go to the hospital because I was struggling to breathe, because my heart rate was crazy. And, what did I, and what in, in that moment, what, what do I do? I, I, Lord, God help me. I can't breathe, Lord. And you just cry out to God, and that's a wonderful thing. It shows our dependence on Him. But yet we get into these times of, of health, and, and, and uh, things are going well, and we can just begin to take those things for granted. In 1 Corinthians, in, in chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, Paul writes this, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. And last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And so what we need to understand here is that here's the, here's the creation of man as God, as God forms man. But we must recognize that we are dependent upon God. And what we'll see, though we'll start to hint at it tonight, and, and we'll certainly dive into it much more next week, is through Adam and through his sin, death enters the world. But because God loves us so much, spoiler alert, right, that he desires to restore us, that though death enters in, and though that creates a separation between man and God, God in his love for us so desires that we'll be reconciled that he brings a life-giving spirit once again through Jesus Christ. And so what we need to see here, even at the very beginning, what I want us to understand is not only does God see fit in the very beginning to create us and to create us differently and to breathe life into us, that at any moment he could take that from us uh, and so we are dependent on him, but that because he loves us so much and desires to maintain a right relationship with us, that he sends a life-giving spirit again. So not just once, but twice does he breathe life into us. This is a God who loves us. And for Adam here now, what he begins to see from the very beginning of his life is in fact a God who loves him and cares for him. Let's look at what we see then in verses 8 and following. The Lord God then planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, differently in my opinion than the act of creating plants, here I think Adam is able to observe God planting. I think that God had created, that there had, are, are things on the earth, but as it pertains to the garden that's planted eastward in Eden, I think he sees God planting. Now is God just on his knees as he sort of digging things up and got his gardening gloves on? I don't know about that. I, I don't know exactly what this looked like other than I, I absolutely believe that what Adam is able to observe here is God as a master gardener, planting and gardening and preparing a special place for the chief of his creation. From the time that the breath is, is breathed into his lungs, then he becomes a 
a living being, that he sees God caring for him and caring for where he's going to be. Henry Morris writes this, that Adam's first knowledge of his creator thus would be of one who loved him and carefully and abundantly provided for him. Christian, this is what I want you to understand tonight, is that from the very beginning in creation, what Adam saw was a God who loved him and cared for him and provided for him and said, look, this is a place that I have made for you. And it's the same God still today. He's caring for Adam. This is love on display. Now here we're also first introduced to the tree of life, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll come back to those next week. I think these are both literal trees with literal fruit, or some botanical food on them. It's really not that far beyond our understanding to consider fruits and vegetables that are incredibly potent and powerful. Okay, And so I think these are real things that we'll consider more so next week. Now we have more of a description here as we continue of the, the garden and, and, and Eden. And in verse 10 we read, Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. <clears throat> now here it's pretty cool because we get some fairly specific information on the geography of Eden. But in my opinion, we really should resist trying to figure out its exact location. There's a lot of people who've looked at this before and said, well, look, we can kind of figure out exactly where uh, Eden was, where the Garden of Eden was. And uh, we have specific names of rivers and lands that exist to this day in what seems to be that same general region. Uh, of course, what, one of the, the key ones that stands out there is the Euphrates River. And, and it says that it, it talks about circling the land of Cush, which is generally accepted to be part of Ethiopia today. And, um, and so there's a lot of people that have said this has got to be kind of the general area uh, where, the, where Eden was. But we need to remember a couple of things. One, the flood changed everything. Well, we've not really gotten to that in our study of Genesis yet. There's a flood that comes. And the, and the flood drastically changes kind of where things are, what things look like, certainly where the rivers may even be flowing, uh, where the land itself is. Um, and then from there, Noah's sons begin to rename things. And it's a good chance that they rename things in some respects just because they're familiar with that name. Uh, because, well, we're going to call this. There used to be this river, this, and maybe this is the same one, or maybe it sort of looks like it's going to some of the same places, but it's different. And so... Uh, it, we, sh we shouldn't look at this necessarily and go, oh, okay, we can look at a map today and, and understand where Eden was. Now, I think we can be confident that Eden was in the area of uh, the Middle East today, which includes, of course, Israel, uh, a chosen piece of land for God's people. Um, and so it's not to suggest that it wasn't probably in that general area, but we can't be confident of the exact location. Now, what's interesting here is that it says that the word, uh, or excuse me, the word says that the garden was planted eastward, which tells us that Eden was not simply a garden alone. It wasn't just the Garden of Eden, but that rather there was the land of Eden with a garden in Eden in the eastern, eastward part of it. 
And so that means that Eden was more expansive. And of course, there were, there were rivers, large rivers that came through the area and went down to other lands as it describes here. And so this seems like it was probably quite an expansive place. And then the Lord God, verse 15, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So here we see that man is placed in the garden, and he is given access to it, and he's charged with keeping it. So we need to recognize here that man was not created for idleness, but to work. Work, we need to understand, is biblical. Work is not a product of the curse. Work isn't something that we go, oh man, if only we could go to that, go to that Garden of Eden state and we just wouldn't have to work anymore. No. Now, work, is, work in, in, in some respects has gotten harder as a result of the fall, but the idea of working, the idea of, of, of using your hands, of, 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 of caring for something, this is part of God's design. He, he created Adam in part to do this. He said, here is, here is what I've created for you. Tend it, keep it, till it. And what's amazing here, once again, as we consider God's provision, is here he says, it's all yours. It's all yours. Except for this one thing. You people always want to talk about uh, their perspectives on religion and Christianity and the Bible and oh, it's so restrictive and it's about all these commandments and and he creates creates man supposedly creates man but then <clears throat> then there's this tree and if you if you touch this then you're gonna die and well that's just a trap and and people want to get so caught up in in sort of well if I would have done it my way I'd have do it I'd have done it like this or whatever the case may be and notice what it says here it says it's all yours there's one tree. One tree you need to stay away from. Everything else, it's yours. That sounds pretty awesome. That sounds pretty plentiful. That sounds like there's an abundance of resources that are given to Adam. You see, Adam had no reason, no reason whatsoever to question God or his love for him or his provision for him. None whatsoever. The only logical position was to see all that God had done and in love and in trust and in obedience do what God asked and refrain from the tree. Noting that to take of it would mean death in terms of separation from God as well as physical death that would enter in because of sin. But God, and this is the big part of it, and we'll consider this more next week as we'll talk about, and we've, we've dealt with this even on some of our Q&As before, and why is, why is there evil, and, and you know, why, why would God create man with free will, and all these different things. We'll give some of those things and some of the arguments that people make a little bit more thought. But, but what we must understand very simply is that God, having created a free moral agent, gives man a choice. He gives him free will. Because without that, there could be no right understanding of love. You cannot have a right understanding of love if it's not rooted in choice, if it's not rooted in free will. Plain and simple. You can't describe for me a scenario where you do. And so if God, in his infinite wisdom, wanted to make man, wanted to create with the ability to have a loving relationship, then the only way for that to occur was to create him as a... A, a free moral agent with the ability to choose. So again, we'll deal with that next week here. But 
suffice it to say that as he sees what's on display and made available to him, there was no reason whatsoever to question God's love, God's provision. And then we come to this place in verse 18, and the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. This is a passage of Scripture that should be kind of funny. If we can only imagine what's happening in this moment as Adam is, is aware of and, and, and perhaps been told uh, that it's good for he, he would need a helper. It's not good for him to be alone. And as he then begins to consider all the animals and the, 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 that are brought before him and to have to be thinking, I don't, I, I don't think this one works. I don't, this is, I'm just not getting that vibe, right? But what's amazing here is God in his continued care for and desire to give man all that he needed. Here he declares that it is not good for man to be alone. Now that statement is true just as much today as it has ever been. Amen? All, if there's any men watching right now, you should say amen. Right? It's not good for you to be alone. You know that when you're alone. You know the way in which the, the enemy can attack. and, and <clears throat> It's not good. Now, what we read here is not a contradiction. And this is where some would look at it and say, well, you see, here now we see that Adam's alive, but now God's creating the animals, and that's different than what we see in the uh, creation account in chapter 1. This is not a contradiction. It would be absurd to accept it as such because doing so would suggest that God, in his infinite wisdom, just now creates the animals, perhaps thinking that one of them might be suitable as a helper and as a mate to Adam, which of course is not the case. God didn't go into this here going, well, uh, I'm, I'm getting the feeling that it's not good for a man to be alone, and so I'm going to go ahead and just create these different animals, and I'm going to bring them and see maybe if Adam thinks that one of them, one of them works. That's not what God is doing here. You could just as easily translate this, and some have, to say, basically from Adam's perspective, that, that he says, and I paraphrase, you see, God, here's what God had done. God had made these animals, and he had brought them from the, the dust of the earth, and, and he began to bring them before me. Right? And that wouldn't be a contradiction there at all. That would just be simply Adam describing the fact that God had created these things, not giving uh, insight into order here so much as to say here's a process and why would God bring the animals before him in this way not because God didn't know you think God doesn't know when God's teaching you things and God's revealing to you things and God's showing you things that God doesn't know the answer but praise God sometimes he's patient with us and he allows us to experience certain things and to see certain things so that we come to a place where we go oh I see this isn't what you had for me Lord it's this instead and so I absolutely believe here that God is uh, allowing different things to be brought before Adam so that he can see, in many respects, the glory of his creation, the things that are available to him, but also so that he can come to a place where he understands more so what it is that God is doing. Again, this is a way of saying really that God had created these animals and they were for Adam's benefit, but he brings them before him so that Adam can see that there is none suitable for true fellowship and for intimacy. And so it's important here, let's not fail to see here, that man stood apart from the animals. Man was created in a different way. Man did not evolve. Note here in the creation account that, 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 that we don't read that, that, that God made some sort of primate type of uh, ape-like animal and, and in time he became like Adam. No, he was created. He was there. 
And as Adam then sees the animals, he knows that they're comparable to him, but yet distinctly different. Man is not just like the animals, as our world wants to tell us. Once again, devaluing who we are. So as Adam sees many of these animals, and and he gives them names, and many people believe that this is absolutely scientific here, that because Adam is created perfect, and he has a perfect mind, and he has perfect knowledge of things, um, per God's design, that he's able to look at these animals and to give them names, appropriate names, that he understands what he's doing. But also, as they continue to be brought before him, not every animal, it's not every aspect of God's creation that's brought before him, but as those that, that are are brought before him, he recognizes and sees these animals just don't cut it. Lord, if you think that it's not good for me to be alone, that there is one who's suitable as a helper to me, I have not yet seen it. And so then in verse 21, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man He made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Note here the manner in which Eve, woman, was made. This is different. Yet again, not only is man, Adam, the pinnacle of God's creation uh, in the way in which he brings him to life, but then from that, from that, that pinnacle of his creation, he does something unique and different in bringing forth woman. As much as I can say, and of course, yes, the, the materials, the elements are still foundationally the same. With man, he takes from the dust of the earth. Nothing, nothing special there. Nothing, nothing special in terms of the, the earth that he pulls together. What's special is that he breathes into him. And so it's from this, this man who now has the breath of God in him that he pulls from him. He pulls from his living flesh to form woman. Now that ought to communicate something, that ought to convey something very special about women in God's creation, which stands opposed to all of those who want to suggest that the Bible and Christianity somehow position women as this sort of inferior thing, but rather they are made in an incredibly special and delicate way. And note also here that woman is God's solution to really the only aspect of creation that God did not deem as good. Everything else in creation to this point, God had said He saw it, and it was good. There was only one thing through this entire creation account that as God looks at it, He says, this isn't good enough yet. It's not good that man should be alone. And His response, His answer, His solution is woman. That, that, absolutely should convey a sense of value and worth for women. And note here, he says that he takes it, he takes her from man. He puts Adam to sleep and he takes from him one of his ribs and he closes up the flesh in its place and he forms woman and he brings her to the man. And so yes, what we need to see here, what we need to recognize is that absolutely she is created for man. That is her purpose, that she is created as a helpmeet. And I know that right now, for people to hear me say that, it's for, for some an incredibly unpopular thing to say, you can't say that. But why not? This is God's design. It is not to suggest that this has always been lived out perfectly. 
that this has been demonstrated, but that doesn't mean that we can't look at what God intended and what God designed and to say, that's the right order, that's the right balance. The woman was created for man in response to a problem. She was the solution. Now, yes, you bring in male chauvinism and you bring in abuse and you bring in uh, man's uh, sinful perspective and that mars it. And then you bring in women's liberation and all these different things about um, how how women should be set apart and how women should be able to do these things and, and that mars it as well. You bring in sinners into the equation and now we screw it all up. But biblically speaking, God's design is perfect. That He has created them, male and female. Male and female, He created them, distinctly different as a man and as a woman. And said, I've designed for the two of you to be together in a function, in a union, in harmony, and it's going to be good. And so, of course, here at the very beginning, in this first perfect relationship, Adam says in verse 23, he's awake now, and he sees the woman, he says, this, this is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Adam is excited now. Adam's been naming different things all day. Who knows what he's seen walking by him, whether it was a horse or a zebra or a dog and all these things. He's like, it's a zebra, and it's a giraffe, and it's a dog. And all these different things, and oh, that's pretty cool, and especially if it was a dog, right? Dogs are cool, and maybe it fetched right away, right? And he's like, this is pretty cool, you know? I could see where this could be a friend of mine, but just, I don't know, I haven't seen it yet, Lord. And then he goes to sleep, and he wakes up, and he's like, I'm a little sore. I don't know what just happened. And all of a sudden, any pain and discomfort that he was feeling is suddenly completely gone as he looks out, and he sees Eve, and he says, holy smokes, that's woman. You, this is, that's what happened. You, you, took, you took her from me. And he says, this is good. This is a wonderful thing. And so Adam, we know, he apparently knows how she was made. It's apparent to him, and he knows it's good. And, and this is wonderful. I mean, he understands now the significance of this creation. And you know, it's the amazing thing. Where, where is it? In Ephesians, in Ephesians 5.29, 5, 20, 5.28, and 29. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. We know there in Ephesians, Paul gives us an example of marriage and he compares it to Christ in the church and he's, he, 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 he's comparing the two relationships and we know that that's ultimately what God was designing here. Was, he was, he was creating a relationship that was intended to mirror something, to point us to something else. But the fact is, Paul deals with a, a, a very basic truth there that for Adam, as he now realizes, she's not like the animals. She didn't just come from the earth like me. She came from me. She was made differently. She was made special. And Paul declares the truth that everybody understands that you don't, you don't hate your own flesh. You hate your own body. You love it. You care for it. And for Adam, I have to absolutely believe this same spiritual truth was understood by him. I'm going to care for her. She came from me. She's special. And so I don't care what people want to say today about, oh, well, you know, I don't, I don't like this whole patriarchal system and the Bible and all that. Listen, look beyond imperfect people to what it is that God designed and what we see here at the very beginning. The very beginning of the Word of God, we're only in chapter 2, is that God has created a relationship here. And he's made a man and a woman. And the way in which they're to function together is to be good. 
There's nothing wrong with God's design. It's perfect. And if we can, can bring ourselves under obedience to it and do our best to live it out, what can be experienced is an absolutely wonderful and beautiful thing. Where a woman can absolutely say, yes, God has created me to serve and to respect and to support my husband and that that can be a wonderful experience and a wonderful relationship when the man looks at the woman and says, and you have been designed for that particular purpose for me and I love you and I'm going to care for you and I'm going to treat you with the dignity and the value and the worth that's inherent upon you as, as part of God's creation. You see, when we, des- when we strive to do those things in the way that God designed it, then it's good. And then what happens here is really we have the first wedding is then it's declared in verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. These principles are being here now put into, into effect here at the very beginning in this first relationship. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. I mean, this, this, this is scripture that should be used in, in every marriage ceremony as a reminder for what is supposed to happen. Then men, you leave your father and mother, you're joined to your wife, and you become one flesh. And this one flesh speaks of physical, spiritual, and emotional unity. All of it. And you can't have one and have it well without the other. That's also what our world tries to tell us. But no, to truly enjoy the physical unity, there must be the spiritual and the emotional unity. All of those things going together so that there's one flesh formed. And it is now one flesh. In the original language here, it speaks of what, what's, I th- I've always thought that the best analogy for how to describe this process is if you take a bag of, of ready-mixed concrete, okay? You know you get that bag and it's, it's, it's dust, right? It, there, there's dust in there. But then you add water and you mix it all together and then it, it hardens up and it forms something that is, that is new. And, you're, and, 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 and if you want to try and take that apart, you're going to have to just, you're going to have to just try and destroy it. Right? It's all mixed together and it becomes one. You can't then just go and separate it out without destroying it. And this is what's to be experienced. Two individuals made in the image of God with the breath of God giving life, created with purpose, but distinctly male and female for various purposes, but who have come together as one. And this speaks here of the significance of marriage and the sanctity of it and the inability to form a single flesh again. And this is why God hates divorce. And this is why it's so destructive. Because it takes something that God joins together and in a fleshly way tries to tear it apart and it doesn't work. And here's the final verse as we look at this. And this is an incredible verse. As it says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now this may seem like the happily ever after statement here, but unfortunately it stands in stark contrast to what will follow in chapter 3 as sin enters in. But for a moment here, and truly here in this moment, mankind is, ex- is, is experiencing something that has never again been experienced. But this is the way that God intended it to be, right here in this moment. Sin had not yet entered in, and along with sin, awareness and shame. Because what's happening here is they're both naked, the man and his wife, and they're there before God, and they're not ashamed is that they are individuals who in this moment are fully known, fully seen, yet without shame, without embarrassment, 
And this really, if you're honest with yourself, and some people, they've, they've kind of pushed this so far down inside that really they don't want to recognize this anymore. But, but, but the fact of the matter is, this is what people truly desire. Yet we do what we can to avoid it. Because the fact of the matter is, when you're in a room, and even if you consider yourself an introvert, uh, the expectation for you, otherwise you feel offended, is that when other people who know you or are familiar with you come into a room, you want to be known, you want to be noticed. doesn't mean you want to be the star of the show. I'm not suggesting that. But you would feel offended if somebody who you know and who cares for you would just sort of walk right by you, never pay you any attention. You'd say, well, what's the deal? Why you got to do me like that? But then at the same time, if somebody comes into a room and, and now all of a sudden they give you too much attention, they sit down and they stare at you and they look at you and, and they won't stop and they won't look away, then all of a sudden you're going to be offended again, right? Because, well, why are you staring at me now? Now you're making me uncomfortable. But the fact is, both of those extremes, and that's what they are, they're extremes, fuel a sense of our desire to want to be seen and want to be known, but only to a certain amount that we're comfortable with. Why? Well, because we deal with shame. We deal with hidden secrets, we deal with sin, we deal with all these things, these insecure thoughts. And the fact of the matter is, what we were designed for was to there be there. And it's not about nakedness so much as it is to say that you can be before someone and again be fully known, be fully seen, and be okay. I mean, think of the most intimate of relationships that you enjoy and for a husband and wife that ought to be that relationship. That's the most intimate one that you really can think of. But even in that, even in that relationship, there are hidden things. There's hidden thoughts. There's elements of your past that maybe have never been divulged. But in this moment here, for Adam and for Eve, there was absolute vulnerability without a care in the world. And this is what God designed. This is what God desires. This is what God has ultimately made a way for once again through His Son, Jesus Christ, and His death upon the cross. We'll consider this more over the next couple of weeks, especially next week in chapter 3 as we see sin entered in, but along with sin. And, and, and now in their awareness of their sin and in their shame, they seek to hide, they run, they seek to, to cover it up. But then God comes and in that first sacrifice, He makes a way to cover them appropriately. We see that again, God loves us. God wants a relationship with us, a right relationship with us. And as we read this here, it should turn our attention to the fact that we can be known, fully known by God, fully seen, and not be ashamed. That sin has brought such shame, that the enemy uses shame to keep us from God, to convince us that we need to hide, but God wants us to come to Him, to be known and to know that we are covered, that when He looks at us, what He doesn't he doesn't see all the things that are a part of our past, but rather that he sees his son and the covering that comes from a surrendered life to Christ. And that while we may not have the innocence that was known in this time, that we have been covered in suitable garments, garments that were bought with the blood of Christ and that we're able to come to him, no longer running, no longer hiding. <clears throat> You see, we can't just read and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and we're not ashamed to go, oh, that's cute. We ought to read that and to say, Lord, that's what my relationship with you should be like. And so you see in this creation account, in this, this chapter that's often chalked up to just biblical narrative and story, what we find is the account of a God who loves a God who cares, a God who provides, a God who knows, and a God who desires intimacy. We find a God who is still the same, never changing, 
He wants you ever as much as when he created in the garden. And, and, and one day, as Adam and Eve here, everyone will stand before him. And some will stand before him ashamed still because they've ignored him and they denied him and they've run from him and they've hid from him. And there will be others, I pray, each and every one of you who stand before him unashamed, covered by the sacrifice of his son, waiting to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. That's what we see in this creation account. Is a God who from the very beginning, even though he knew what would happen, he created us anyway, and he made a way for us to have a right relationship with him, a God who provides, who cares, who gives, who covers. And it's the same God then. It's the same God we serve still today. Amen? We have a God who loves us, who cares for us. And I pray that you're encouraged by that tonight. That in the midst of so many different things that we know are going on in our world, things that can cause discouragement, things that can cause fear and anxiety, to be able to sit back and to say, God, you're the same still today. And you're on the throne and you love me. You care for me. And I don't need to be ashamed. I don't need to run. I don't need to hide. I can just trust in you. I can trust that you want to provide for me. You want to care for me. You want to watch out for me. The creation account should remind us of the God that we serve. It should be of great encouragement to us. Let me pray for us here this evening. Father, we pause once again, Lord, and we thank you for the truths that we find in Scripture, Lord. The things that though we may not have been there in that moment, as you, even with Job, Lord, recognized, were you there as you asked him, when you hung the stars in the heavens. And no, Lord, we weren't there, but we thank you that in your word you give us insight into what happened in those times. And it gives us insight, Lord, into your character, who it is that you are, what you think about us, what you feel about us, how you love us, how you make a way for us. Lord, remind us of those truths here tonight, for we need it, Lord. And forgive us, Father, of the times then we do forget it, when we sometimes think that maybe we're all alone or that we can't come to you. Rather, Lord, by your Spirit, draw us near once again. Help us, Lord, to know and to enjoy that intimacy that we can have with you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have made a way for it, for us to be in right standing, to be able to be known by God and not be ashamed. Thank you for that, Lord. Father, we love you, we praise you, and I pray for each and every person joining here tonight, watching, Lord, that you'd encourage them right where they are, Lord, strengthen them, we pray. Continue to bring healing once again, Lord, to our body. And Lord, if we might ask, make a way for us to be together in fellowship once again. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week. So make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.